Joshua chapter 10. Uh, to give you a little bit of context and background, just to remind you where we've been since we've, it's been a little while since we've been together. Joshua and the Israelites, as we've been studying through the book of Joshua, they've entered into the promised land, and in doing so, they've, they've found that there are some, uh, some battles that must be fought. This is something they knew going in, that they were, there would be uh, inhabitants of the land that they would have to uh, make war with, and uh, so they've, they've fought and conquered uh, Jericho and uh, I. And the, the Gibeonites were the next group on the map. And uh, as, as they moved in and, and started to, to plan their attack on Gibeon, the, the Gibeonites actually devised a plan uh, to trick the Israelites into signing a peace treaty with them. And here's the thing, it worked. <laughs> uh, the Gibeonites come together and they, they put on their, their costumes to make it look like they had traveled from a far and distant land. They had moldy bread. It looked like that they had been traveling for a long way. And they had this story of how they had traveled a long way. And Joshua and Israel's leadership was, was duped. To the point that they swore an oath before God. They swore before God that they, would, um, that they would spare the Gibeonites and would not make war with them. And uh, the people of Israel hear of this. Um, and this was disobedience. I mean, they were not supposed to spare those that were close to them. They were uh, allowed to if they were from a distant place, but not if they were close. And so uh, the, 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 Israel, the Israelites hear, and uh, they're, they're furious. Why would, why would Israel, why would the leadership not do uh, as they've been commanded and, and, and uh, to destroy these Gibeonites. And to Joshua's credit, he's not swayed by popular opinion here. He's, 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 he, he informs Israel that, that though they're duped, they're going to keep their word, uh, that they're going to uh, keep the oath they made before God, that two wrongs don't make a right. And, uh, and so they, they spare the Gibeonites. And that was the, that's the context. That's where we saw last week. Um, in this relationship that Israel now has with Gibeon. Now in chapter 10, unsurprisingly, the people around Israel, the, the nations or the, the cities around Israel hear of this and they, they quickly fear um, what, what could happen to them and they form another confederation, another alliance. These southern cities come together and, and form a coalition against Israel. This time, though, they plan to strike Gibeon, not Israel. They, they plan to strike these, these new servants of Israel uh, and, and see how Israel will respond. And so verses 3 through 5 show their plan. If you'll read with me in Joshua chapter 10, we'll read verses 3 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. And so Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, and said... Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, that is the king of Israel, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, Joshua doesn't know this yet. He, he, he's not informed yet of what's happening. But you can imagine that from a human perspective, Joshua's problems just increased tenfold. I mean, to this point, in, in what we've read in Joshua, their, their military efforts have been very simple. God has given them the victory. They walk into to Jericho, the walls come crumbling down, they go to Ai, God gives miraculous victory. But here, this coalition of, of armies, they're attacking Gibeon, because Gibeon, again, a traitor. They've, they've now made themselves a part of Israel, so they're a traitor. And if these armies prevail, this confederacy wins, then they'll certainly turn their sights toward Israel. 
And so this proposes uh, a huge test for Israel's leadership. And remember, Israel's leadership's just recently failed in, in, this, in this engagement with Gibeon because they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't seek the face of God before making this decision. And so verse, verse 6 continues by giving us Gibeon's response, Gibeon's plea for, for help. Look at verse 6. Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Now, you can imagine this would have been a pretty easy uh, request to ignore. I mean, think about this. This is like that, that friend request you get on Facebook that you know is spam and you're like, ignore. Think about who these people are. I mean, you can imagine Joshua probably wanted to ignore this this, this, this request for help. They're not lifelong friends with the Gibeonites. In fact, they're not friends at all. A few days earlier, the Gibeonites had, had made Joshua play the fool and tricked him into uh, to this, this peace treaty with their Oscar-winning performance, right? And you can imagine, or at least I, I would have at least felt this way, that Joshua probably wanted to ignore this cry for help, maybe even chalking it up to just another trick. They're, they're trying to get us to run to their aid and, and come help them. Then they're going to attack us or something. Like, who knows what these cunning Gibeonites are up to? That's not the way Joshua saw it. And though he had made this covenant with them, and, and the covenant did not. I mean, you go back and read that. There's nothing that says that Israel's required to protect Gibeon for the, for the rest of their days. They had just made an oath, a covenant not to destroy them. And yet, they became servants of Israel. Joshua sees it as his duty to, to stick to his word, to stick to his commitments, to stick to principle, and to go above and beyond the call of duty even. He remains a man of integrity, even here with these, these folks that tricked him, that duped him. And God affirms this decision. You see in verse 8, God affirms this. Do not fear, I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand, against, stand before you. Joshua's a man of integrity here. He had a, a clear conscience as he marched his men up to Gibeon. I think it would do us well to pause for a moment and just camp out on that idea. And that idea of having a clear conscience before God and before man, before your God and your neighbor. This idea is, is a key ingredient to fighting the spiritual battles that you and I face every day. That we can stand and fight. We can stand boldly on our convictions when we know we've been a person of, of integrity and we've stood and done the right thing before God and before our neighbor. Joshua knew he had done the right thing by keeping his word to Gibeon. Even if it wasn't the popular opinion, even if it wasn't winning over the masses in Israel, he knew he had done the right thing. And this is not just a Joshua issue. This is New Testament Christianity. I mean, think about all that, all that Paul has to say on this issue of having a, a clear conscience before the Lord and doing the right thing before your neighbor. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul tells young Timothy, uh, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, tells Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 3, giving qualifications for elders and deacons. What should you look for, Timothy? Well, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is an idea that comes up over and over again. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. And Paul, Acts, in, in, in Acts chapter 23, Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, the, the religious body of his day, and he looks them squarely in the face, Acts chapter 23 says. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, it says, uh, Paul says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And then, later in chapter 24 of Acts, 
Not only does Paul stand before the religious body of his day, Paul stands before the governor, Felix. He says the same thing in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. So I always take pains, Paul says, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. The scriptures show us this over and over again. It's in Joshua, it's in the New Testament. Yes, you have to know the gospel. You have to believe the truths of God. But your life should not uh, be contrary to those truths that you believe. Your life should testify to those truths. It's not enough for you to say you believe something if your integrity says something differently. We must be people of of good conscience, of of integrity. People that are principled. and, And not only believe certain things, faith, truths... But with a clear conscience, act out those things with right deeds and actions. And in, in that, in that uh, we can stand and fight boldly, with confidence, with no regrets. Knowing we've believed rightly and we've acted rightly before God and our neighbor. And so it's with this demeanor, it's with this uh, frame of mind that we go from verse 8. Joshua's just been affirmed. Uh, God's affirmed that he's with them, that they will not be uh, destroyed or defeated. And with that confidence, he leads his men on a 20-mile journey to Gibeon, right, through the night, the text will tell us. If you know anything about the geography there, it's up an elevation of 3,000 feet. Verse 9 and 10 describe the surprise attack. Look at verse 9 with me. And so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Oron and struck them at, as far as Azekah and Makeda. So Joshua has them on the run. Uh, this alliance, this coalition of armies has now tucked tail and they're running from Israel, from Joshua and the, the, the people of, of, of the Gibeonites even. And God does an extraordinary thing next. Look at verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So here's the scene. They've marched through the night. They've engaged them in battle. This coalition of armies turns and runs, and they begin to outrun Israel. They begin to distance themselves from Israel, which makes complete sense. I mean, Israel's just taken a 20-mile journey through the night up an ascent of 3,000 feet, and when they get there, they engage in a very physical battle, and so they begin to outrun them. Their enemies are, are escaping. And so what happens next... God unleashes artillery from heaven. Great hailstones, it says, come down from the sky so that no one on that day could miss that it was Israel's God that was fighting the battle and winning. Their enemies had no doubt. Israel had no doubt. This shouldn't be a surprise for us, right? I mean, this is what God's been telling Israel all the way back to Deuteronomy. I mean, even as Israel's preparing for battle, their their habit was that as they're in getting ready, getting their things ready to go in battle, a priest would go out and recite over them this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy 20, verse 3 and 4. Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight against your enemies and to give you the victory. Can you imagine you're, you're tying your shoes, you're lacing your boots up, you're getting your, your equipment ready for battle, and that's being read over you by a priest as, as the word of God to you? And this is the reality that they're seeing with these hailstones. I mean, I can just imagine that many of them, if not all of them, are remembering Deuteronomy 20 that I just read to you as these hailstones begin to fall, right? Like he's doing it. Like that thing he said he was going to do in Deuteronomy, he's doing it before our very eyes. He's fighting our battles. 
It was a moment that we see this truth brought out in verse 8 that God's promised them again and again and again that he's going to fight their battles. He's going to be the one that engages in victory and wins. I mean, it probably brings Joshua's mind back to being outside of the gates of Jericho before those walls fell and meeting with the commander of the Lord's hosts and the commander telling him, this is the Lord's battle. The question is, Joshua, are you going to be on the Lord's side? He's going to win. I can remember, imagine all these things are being remembered in this moment as they see these, these great hailstones fall. But it's all over the text. It's not just with the hailstones. God's fighting the battle clearly all over this text. Let me show you how else we see that. In verse 10, if you look at the, the word of God with me, there are four verbs in verse 10, four actions that are taking place. Different translations of the Bible interpret this verse differently. Uh, because there's some debate over these verbs in the original Hebrew, in the language they were written, that the, the scriptures were written in. The ESV that I'm preaching from gives God credit for the first verb, right? That he threw, that God threw, uh, did the throwing, and then Israel does the striking, chasing, and striking again. But I really like the way the New American Standard translates it. If you read the New American Standard, it's a more literal word-for-word translation of the Hebrew. And I think it gets at the theological point much better. I think it gets at the original Hebrew much better. The New American Standard says this, And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and then he, that subject is he, that's God, slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And then notice there's no change in subject, and he, then implied, pursued them by way of ascent to Beth Horon, and again, no change in subject. He struck them as far as Ezekiah and Makeda. The point may be strange to us and strange for our ears to hear that Yahweh, that God is the one pursuing and slaughtering an enemy. That may be strange for us to hear, but that's precisely the point. The writer of Joshua is showing us that Yahweh, that the God of Israel, is the sovereign warrior, that he's the one fighting this battle. He's the one who crushes the enemy. He's the one acting in all four verbs of verse 10. And so if that's not clear enough, you get verse 11, right? That God is the one, the only one who's able to hurl down these hailstones and ultimately end the battle. And then you get verse 11b. It's sort of like an exclamation point to this great truth that we've already seen. 11b, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. It's God fighting their battles. It's him doing it. And so what application do we make from this? Like, what, How do we take this truth and, and live it out today in, in, in our lives, in our day-to-day lives? What do we learn from this? Listen, friends, there's never been a battle that you have won that did not come from the hand of God. There's never been a battle that you've won, regardless of what that may be in your family life, in your work life, spiritually, with your neighbors, with your kids. There's never been a battle that you've won that did not come from the hand of God. He fights our battles. I have this pet peeve. We all have pet peeves, right? We have things that just kind of bug us, right? Kind of get on our nerves. I have a pet peeve about worship songs that are vague. I don't know if you're there with me, but I'm I'm thankful for men like Michael and Jesse who select songs every week for us to sing as the church that that are gospel-centered and they're, they're high on Christ clarity, just who Christ is and what he's done for us. But I have this pet peeve about worship songs that are vague and uh, that you could, you could like, you could literally sing them about Jesus or your earthly daddy, and the song. There's no context in the song for which one you're talking about. Like it could apply to Father's Day or or Jesus, right? Like that just bugs me to death. And so over Thanksgiving, I'm riding in Mom's car. We're back in Louisiana, 
And there's this song that came on, and it's super catchy, and I find myself like bobbing my head, and I'm singing along. It's, it's really simple, so I'm, I'm singing along with it, and I'm singing along with it. And the, the words, the, the only word that it says is, 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 um, is, this is how I fight my battles. And I now know that that song's by Michael W. Smith, and I think Bethel Worship wrote it originally, and it just keeps repeating, this is how I fight my battles. And it's catchy, and I'm singing. And then I realize that's literally the only thing that they've said. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. And so I, we're riding in silence, just kind of going down the road, and, and I'm singing this song a little bit, and Mom's kind of singing a little bit, and I go, how? <laughs> like, how? Like, please tell me how you fight your battles. I need more truth to sing than that. I need to know how I fight my battles. Like, I need to sing more truth. And my mom kind of looks at me like I'm crazy. It's probably warranted. Uh, this song that was really enjoyable, it was a catchy tune. It ultimately drove me crazy because it didn't say anything about how we fight our battles. And I look at my Bible, I look at, I look at Joshua chapter 10, and I want to go, how did Israel fight her battles? How did this battle end for Israel? Friends, it ended with the men of Israel bowed over, hands on their knees, huffing and puffing and sucking wind because they're slap burn out. But God sends down ice missiles from heaven and takes out more people than the entire army of Israel. That's how they fought their battle. They were burnt slap out. But God did it. Friends, see this truth today. We serve a sovereign God who's promised to fight our battles There's nothing in this world that will come against you if you are in Christ that will catch God asleep. There's nothing that's going to come against you that catches him off guard. If your battle's going to be won, it will be the Lord that secures that battle and not you, friend. It's his sovereignty. It's his goodness that he's fighting our battles for us. Watch this. This is is not an Old Testament only idea. You get to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 6. Right? This is Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 6. Very familiar passage to us about spiritual warfare. right? And the, and the armor of God that we put on, the helmet of salvation, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, feet shod with the shoes of the gospel, the belt of truth. We've heard this before. But we find that passage, we find the description of that armor in the context of verse 10 of Ephesians 6. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. You can write it down for later. But all of that armor comes in the context of verse 10, which Paul says this, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then you, you, hit, you hear the description of the armor, and then it's capped off at the end in verse 18 by saying, Praying at all times in the Spirit. So, so you're given this armor, but it's, it's bookended by God's strength, his might, fighting in him and praying that he would do it, right? So this armor is useless if you're not in Christ. This armor is just, it's just an image. It's just a picture if you're not in Christ, if he's not the one fighting, engaging, and winning your battles. This is what we see about the way we fight our battles, that he's the one doing it. And then Joshua offers this prayer. You jump back to Joshua 10. Joshua offers this interesting prayer. I dare to say it's probably the most unique prayer in the entire Bible. Verse 12, in the midst of everything going on there in Gibeon with these armies that have come up against them, you see this prayer in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, here's his prayer, Son, that's S-U-N, not S-O-N, Sun in the sky, sun stands still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. That's it. That's the full prayer. It's short, sweet, and to the point. And then the text continues. The sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies, 
Is it not written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I've never prayed a prayer like that before. That's strange. Uh, we're teaching Desmond to pray at home, and he's doing pretty good. And we're, we're proud of the, the, the progress he's making. We, we tell him to, 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 when he's talking to God, it's just like talking to someone else. You're, you're just praying, you're talking to God, and in there, in that, you, you, you tell God how great he is. You tell him how great he is, and you confess your sins to him. We tell him all that we're thankful for, and then we make our request to him. And he's, he's doing pretty good. And sometimes as things are really strange... <laughs> Like our dog Olive, I think she's the most prayed for dog in the entire world. But it's on his heart. It's what he's thinking about. So we encourage him, man, if that's what you're, it's on your heart, pray for it. Pray for Olive if you want to pray for Olive. And as strange as Desmond's prayers are, and often as short as Desmond's prayers are, I think this one takes the cake, right? Like when you can pray for the sun and moon to stand still, and they do, it's pretty safe to say that you have a pretty good prayer life. This is an awesome thing. There's a lot of theories. You read commentaries as to how this happened. Um, I read a lot about those, and, and instead of just really digging into those, I'll give them to you real quickly just because I don't think we know, really. I've named them myself just to maybe help us to maybe understand them or summarize them a little better. Uh, there's the unacceptable. That's what I named it, unacceptable theory, that this is just figurative, right? That these soldiers had been in so much battle and strenuous activity that it felt like the day that would never end. And I read that, and I marked an X on it and said, nope. Uh, because if that's the case, why does God make such a big deal out of it in Scripture in verse 14 that there had never been a day like this before? This is literal. God's doing something here. So unacceptable. There's the astronomical view that this was like uh, an eclipse, right? Like a solar or a lunar eclipse. There's been some research done to show that uh, there was like a, a Mars eclipse in 1400 B.C. Okay, maybe. There's the, I named this one the, uh, the far-fetched redneck answer, right? No, no. Commentary scholars didn't call it that, but I called it that because I can just picture like one of my cousins from South Louisiana coming up with this theory. Like, well, it's refracted light. You say like like the sun reflects the light from the the sun to the moon, the earth. God's reflecting it like a mirror to the point where He wants it to go. Maybe. If God wants to put light on the battlefield right there with something from the heavens, He can do it. Right? He can do that. So maybe. Some have theorized it's like the Alaskan or Northern Lights type thing, that like for a season of time in, in Alaska, you'll have long days and long nights, different times of the year. Maybe that's what it is. The point is, I don't think we really know, and I don't think that's the point. I think we are to believe what the scriptures say, that God miraculously entered up the normal cycle of daylight and, 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 and nighttime for his purposes. Now, atheists are going to have an issue with that. They're not gonna, that's not going to be good enough. That's not going to be a good enough answer, but if he can speak and create everything, then certainly he has the power and right to alter it whenever he's ready. If he can raise the dead to life, certainly he can stop the sun if he gets good and ready. So we believe that it happened. We don't know how, but it happened. Here's the thing, though. Would you believe me if I told you that the sun stopping in a 24-hour in a period of, of daylight is not even the biggest miracle in these verses? It's not even the biggest miracle in this text. Of course God can make a 24-hour day of, of sunshine. Not sure how he did it, but he did it. Here's the most incredible thing in that text. Look at verse 14. The Lord heeded the voice of a man. 
Did you hear that? That the God of the universe listened and heeded the voice of a human being. That the one who spoke and mountains were formed, the one who knows every grain of sand on the seashore, he responded when one of his creatures called out. That's incredible. That's a miracle. Here's the truth, that that, that God is the one fighting our battles, that that because God is the one fighting our battles, it doesn't uh, negate the the responsibility that we have to engage in those battles. Let me say that again because I really messed that up. Just because God is the one fighting our battles, it doesn't negate the responsibility we have to engage in those battles. This is one of the most beautiful tensions in all of Scripture, that God is sovereign, He's in control of all things, and yet man is responsible for responding to God. We see it all over Scripture. The power of prayer. It's all over Scripture. It's irreplaceable in the Christian's life. We can't live without prayer. You can't faithfully follow God unless you're spending time with Him in prayer, unless you're communing with Him, talking with Him, spending time with Him. So as we look at the text of Joshua, we see all these truths kind of coming together. And so I want to kind of summarize for us and then unpack some ideas. First, your integrity, sticking to principles, being a man or woman of your word, doing the things that you say you're going to do. It is key. It's a key ingredient. It is vital for faithfully following Christ in our world. Second, knowing that the battle is God's battle, that if and when the battle's won, that it's God's victory, that he's the one fighting our battles. It's key. It's a key ingredient to faithfully living out the Christian life in our day and age. Third, that we just saw from Joshua, an effective and fervent prayer life. It's how we commune with our creator. It's another ingredient we see here that we go before the Lord and we spend time uh, communing with him. But fourth, I think there's another one here. I think there's another truth that we see even in this prayer of Joshua, faithful ingredient here to following God. You have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be a doer of God's word. You have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be a doer of God's word. Notice Joshua's prayer. He didn't just presume that God was going to do all of it. Right? He he didn't ask God to do that. Think about this. He could have prayed, hey, those, those hailstones, those ice missiles from heaven, those were pretty cool. And they were pretty effective. Could you send some more of those? Right? Like, could you just send more ice missiles to take out the rest of our army? He didn't pray that. He simply asked for more time, more, more time to fight, more time to engage in the battle that God had commanded them to engage in. God, just give us more time to do the thing you've called us to do. We'll be faithful. We'll do the hard stuff. We'll be faithful in doing the hard things that you've called us to. This should change the way we pray. This should change the way we think about answers to our prayers, right? Are we praying in such a way that we're asking God to make us a part of the answer to the thing that we're requesting? Are we praying in such a way that we're saying, God, would you make me a part of the answer to your prayer here, right? I mean, there's a lot of times when preachers use their hands and it's it's, it's not really necessary. It's just what we do. But here's one of those times I want you to watch my hands because I think this helps maybe to see this. This is often the way we pray. God's here, right? Here in heaven. We're praying to God. He's here everywhere with us. He's omnipresent. But for the sake of the illustration, he's here. And we pray, God, would you do this? There's this problem over here. There's this thing that we want resolved. Maybe it's a, a lost uh, a family member, a mother or father who doesn't know Christ. So God's here. God, would you save family member? Would you do something that would change their lives, save our family member, right? That's the way we often pray. But what if we prayed like this? God, you're here. I'm going to pray that you would use me to save family member. God, would you give me opportunities to share the gospel so that you would save family member? Would you give me boldness to encourage to go and share the gospel with them so they'll come to know you? God, would you use me to be an answer, a part of the answer to the thing that I'm asking for? 
This is what Joshua's praying. He's not expecting God just to do everything, though we know that he does. He's the one in charge. He's the one that's sovereign. He's praying, God, would you, would you just give us more daylight so we can do the thing you've called us to do? Would you give us more time to fight the battle that we've, that we've clearly heard you tell us to engage in? This should change the way we think about our prayer life. So the question, have you been praying through a difficulty? God, would you just give me a way out of this? God, would you just give me a way out of this, right? There's nothing wrong with that prayer. There's nothing wrong with wanting something to be passed over or something to pass over us. I mean, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, let's do it another way, right? There's nothing wrong with that prayer, but maybe we need to move to the rest of Jesus' prayer in the garden, right? Jesus doesn't stay there. Jesus ultimately says, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe that needs to be the rest of our prayer. Father, I'll do this. Father, I'll walk this hard road. Father, I'll deal with this difficult circumstance, but I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need courage in the midst of this. I'm going to need your grace to go through this. This is difficult. This is too hard. It will crush me on my own. I need you. Maybe we need to move to that part of Jesus' prayer. Friends, he delights in answering prayer like that because it magnifies his strength in our weakness. We would say to him, God, I know you've called me to this. And I'm not going to ask it to pass over me, but I'm going to ask for your grace in the midst of it. I'm going to ask for courage. I'm going to ask for faith because I'm, I'm struggling to believe right now. This is a prayer that he loves to answer. So he calls us to roll up our sleeves and be a doer of his word, even when it's difficult. And he delights in giving us the grace, the faith to do that. I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 10. So we're only about halfway through. Verses 16 through 27 show us how Joshua deals with the five kings that conspired against Gibeon in Israel. Chapter, or the, the, so that's 16 through 27. In 28 through 39, it shows us how Joshua deals with the six cities of the southern part of the promised land. So if you picture what they've done is the promised land here, they've went in about halfway and attacked Jericho and Ai. And so there's this southern part. They've divided the promised land, if you will, with these two major battles. There's the southern part and there's the northern part. And all of chapter 10 is dealing with that southern part. So these kings that have come together, they're forming an alliance within the southern part of the kingdom. And verses 28 through 39 are going to... Uh, just very methodologically show us each city. It's going to be very repetitious. We're not going to read all of that for the sake of time, but you can see it in your text. He goes in, he engages them, he defeats them. He goes in, he engages them, and he defeats them. It's one after another, all six of those cities. But I do think we see a fifth ingredient to faithfully following God in, in our world, in our day and age, in, chapter, in the rest of this chapter, in 16 through 39. So uh, we're going to summarize and, and read parts of it. What we see, though, is that this fifth element, this fifth ingredient to following God faithfully is confidence, complete confidence in our God. Complete confidence in our God. Watch how the text unfolds. We'll read verses 17 through 27. 17 through 27. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones in front of the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard it. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant uh, that remained uh, of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. 
They brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they had brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this day. Do you see how this text in these verses is just ringing with confidence in God? That Joshua knows the victory is won. It's been affirmed to him over and over and over. And his heart is is hearkening all the way back to verse 8 where God has said, Don't fear them. I've given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before you. I've given you this victory. It's not only an Old Testament occurrence. This is what Paul says in the New Testament. This is Philippians 1.28. Do not be frightened by anything by your opponents. This is the clear sign of them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We have this confidence in God that our great God has the ability to win every battle that comes against us. Here's the thing. I want to end here because this is vital for us. This is so important for us that as we study the book of Joshua, I've said this before in our study, but I want to say it frequently. It's imperative that we understand that the book of Joshua is not just a lesson about morality. It's not just, uh, it's not just a recipe that we would follow uh, and be rigid followers of this, these lessons and we'll get it all right. Like, I'll do this and then I'll do that and then I'll do this and then I'll do that and then I'll have it. No, all, all of these traits, all of these commands, these ingredients that I've just pointed out to you, all five of them are not so that you would become Joshua. You would be like Joshua, but it's actually to point you to another Joshua, the one born in Bethlehem, Yeshua. They share the same Hebrew name. Jesus of the New Testament. He's Jehovah's salvation. Joshua here in these these commands and everything that he's doing, that Israel's doing, is to point us to Jesus, the one who is Jehovah's salvation, the one who brought ultimate salvation, the salvation that the Old Testament Joshua could not bring. And think about what we learn of Christ in the New Testament. He embodies these five ingredients perfectly. I mean, think about this. Integrity, being a man of principle, absolutely. Absolutely. He stuck to the principles of God's word perfectly. It was Christ who said, I always do the will of him who sent me. Absolutely, he was a man of integrity and conscience. Always depended upon God's, uh, always depended upon God the Father to fight his battle. Number two, oh yeah, think of of his arrest. This this idea that that I could have legions of angels in, in a snap. I could have legions of angels here to fight on my behalf. He knew that he had complete confidence in the Father. In complete confidence that that grave, that tomb, would not be his final resting place. Number three, he demonstrated a rich and fervent prayer life. It's Jesus who prays, Abba, Father, in in, in the Gospels. He teaches us to pray to our our Father like Daddy. Think how many times, even in the the book of of Mark, as we study through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gets alone to pray. And And Mark specifically shows us that, that Jesus has distanced himself. He's separated himself because he's going to pray. He's going to meet with the Father. Teaches us in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we know. He's teaching us to pray. This is an important thing for Jesus. It comes up throughout the Gospels. It's literally the last thing he's doing before he gives his life on the cross. He's praying. 
Of course he had a rich and fervent prayer life. If the Son of God needed that, how much more do his adopted sons and daughters need that? Number four, he was willing to roll up his sleeves and do the hard job himself. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. That having this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Jesse started us in worship. This is why we celebrate Christmas, that he would put glory aside and take on our stinky flesh. He did the hard work himself. He was willing to come into contact with a sinful world in order to save it. He didn't take the easy way out. Number five, he's perfectly confident in God, in the Father. He's fully confident. This is why he's able to, to, to walk the, the Via Della Rosa. This is why he's able to put a cross on his back and ascend a hill called Calvary and be nailed to a cross as a criminal, as a thug, and be put in a, in a tomb. This is why he's able to, because he knew that there was coming a day when every knee would bow to his lordship. He's fully confident in that. He knows the end from the beginning. His confidence in the Father is unshakable. He perfectly embodies all five. So yes, friend, this text should, that should point us to the, the true and better Joshua whose birth we celebrate this month. Not a single commentary mentioned this. It's usually a scary thing for a preacher. <laughs> Not a single commentary mentioned this, but I couldn't help but notice it. Like verse 26 and 27. They put them to death and they hang them on five trees. Talking about the kings of this coalition. They hang them on five trees and they hung on those trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, and they threw them into the cave that they were hidden in. They set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this day. I read that, and I'm like, how do you not think about another man who was hung on a tree and who was taken down and who was buried in the side of a hill with a large stone rolled in front of it? Like, I'm reading this going, commentaries, come on, you, you seriously don't have anything to say about this? Like, like, like that, that doesn't sound like Jesus' death to you. There's, there's, it can't be coincidence, right? Like, there's one major difference, though. Talking about the stone rolled in front of the mouth of the tomb. In Joshua 10, it says it remains to this day. The stone that was rolled in front of my king's tomb is not here today. It was rolled away when he conquered death. Praise be to God. He's not dead. This is the truth that we celebrate in Christmas. Even though this is our Easter story, this is the truth we celebrate, that this baby born in a manger would grow up to be a man and give his life so that we could have our sins forgiven, and he'd rise from the dead to prove that he conquered death. So as we conclude, should we strive to embody these five aspects of faithfulness? Yes. By the, by the Spirit of God, yes, we should strive for these. But more than that, you need to trust that the true and better Joshua has embodied them and accomplished them for you. He's done the hard work that you couldn't do. He gave his life on the cross because he knew you would ultimately fail at these things. And he offers you forgiveness and grace today if you would give your life to him. I pray you would do that today. If you're a believer, commit that afresh today, that you would follow him, even through the hard stuff. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ for salvation, maybe this is the first time that you've heard, really heard, like you've heard the story of Jesus, but you've never really heard that someone gave their life so that your sins could be forgiven. Trust him today. Call out to him and confess your sins. Scriptures tell us that he's faithful to do so.